You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as Yahweh the God of your fathers has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to Yahweh your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to Yahweh your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to Yahweh your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of Yahweh your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of Yahweh your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to Yahweh, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen.
And if you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Yahweh will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Yahweh will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Yahweh, and they shall be afraid of you. And Yahweh will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers to give you. Yahweh will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And Yahweh will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Yahweh will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Yahweh will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed." Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Yahweh will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. Yahweh will strike you with madness and blindness 
and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth the wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless." A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sight that your eyes see. Yahweh will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils, of which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Yahweh will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples, where Yahweh will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field, and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve Yahweh your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom Yahweh will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Yahweh will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns." until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which Yahweh your God has given you, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom Yahweh your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. 
The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing left. In the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which her enemy shall distress you in your towns." If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, Yahweh will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And as Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And Yahweh will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. And there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But Yahweh will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, If only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, If only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And Yahweh will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again, And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode... 674 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, July 30th, 2023. That was a reading of actually two chapters, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, because they go together. Very importantly, they should be read together. In my view, I got to the end of Deuteronomy 27 and I thought, man, this is not the end. This is not the end. So that was a longer reading, but a very sobering one. And a hopeful one in its way, but we need to talk about the blessings and the cursings, blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. Also, be aware, stay tuned. We will be talking about The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot by Russell Kirk, which I just finished reading yesterday, 
And we also should talk about that because it relates, actually. It relates very well to this passage we're reading in Deuteronomy. But first, to the passage, let's start from the top. So this is a redux of what we read already. Again, the book of Deuteronomy is a retelling of the story to this point by Moses. But you have in Deuteronomy 27 blessings placed on one mountain and curses on another. You have blessings set up on the one associated with obedience, and these blessings are tremendous. They are pretty great blessings. Basically, if you will obey, if you will faithfully execute in a joyful way, in a genuine way, worship of your God, service to your God, then you will prosper. You will prosper economically. You will prosper socially. You will prosper culturally. You'll prosper militarily. When your enemies come against you, you will win those battles. And also you'll prosper in a familial way. You will get married and you will have lots of children. You will be fruitful and you will multiply. You will fill the earth and you will subdue it. These are really great blessings for obedience. Really great. It's a relatively short list. Verses 1 through 14 in chapter 28 compared to the curses for disobedience. The curses for disobedience are truly horrifying. They are the stuff of horror movies. You've got references to situations specific, not just on the macro, right? But personal, just like there will be blessings on the macro and the personal for obedience, there will be curses on the macro and at the personal level for disobedience. And you have all this business about fathers eating their children and not sharing right? Not sharing with their other children, their last remaining child, not sharing with their wife. That's horrifying. That is macabre. That is the stuff of nightmares, if nothing else is. You have this description of a woman eating her own afterbirth because she's so hungry. And what does it say? The gentlest, right? The gentlest, lowliest, softest, most kind-hearted among your men and women will do this when you are besieged because there will be nothing else to eat. The siege will be so cruel and so long, you will all do this thing. And it's horrifying, right? You're going to be scattered among the nations. You will become a horror to the nations. You'll be scattered. You'll become a byword to the nations. People will reference you as a people and immediately know and understand the meaning when you're even just mentioned. You're just brought up in conversation as a cautionary tale. Don't be like those guys. See what happened to them? Yeah. Don't be those guys. If you disobey, just like God would delight in blessing you, and he did, right? He did delight in blessing you for obedience. He will also, it says, and this is a jarring addition or modification to our understanding of God, he will delight in 
destroying you. He delighted in blessing you when you obeyed. He will delight in cursing you when you disobey, when you are faithless, when you are immoral, when you're ungodly, when you're idolatrous, when you're evil, when you're corrupt. But let's talk about the blessings for obedience for a moment. Because if we only focus on the curses for disobedience, we will likely become depressed and discouraged, and we do not want to grow weary in doing what is good or weary about doing what is good. If we're not doing what is good, we don't want to be cynics and say, there is no such thing as good. That way is death. Blessings for obedience need our attention. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Verse 3 of Deuteronomy 28. So think with me for a moment about in the United States, the difference, generally speaking, not just in the United States, all over the world, but the difference between urban life, urban society, urban culture, the urban way of life, the urban mindset, and all of the parallels in rural areas. Life is different in small towns out in the country than it is in the big cities, the big metropolitan areas where trade happens, where commerce happens, where there is manufacturing, where political power typically rests disproportionately, not just because there are more people, but there's a kind of exponential increase in political power in the cities. It's not linear. You could have a million people living out in the country in a state, and you could have a million people living in one city, and it will be the fact that the city with a million people will exert more influence over the one million people who live out in the country all spread out. But this says, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, which is to say it's worth pointing out that the blessing is both for those who are urban and those who are rural. And it's going to look different, and that's part of why it's mentioned individually like that. Specifically, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. So here we have being described young couples in particular getting married, having children, raising those children, raising livestock, having livestock which are able to reproduce after themselves and make you more secure, more financially independent, wealthier. That's what's being described here. And this is economic. It's going to be economic at a personal level when the fruit of your ground is blessed. But it's also going to scale up. If all of the individual people in the cities and in the country, in the field, if they are all blessed in this way with families marked by abundance, then the nation as a whole is a nation marked by abundance. And what's interesting too is you have in the next paragraph, Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They'll come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways, which is to say they will retreat in a panic not orderly. They will be so broken when they come out to fight you, 
that they will scatter in seven directions, which is to say they will completely scatter because seven is the number of completion. Yahweh will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Verse 8. So here the barns are what? That's where you store your animals and your feed and your implements. And you will be able to store everything and have it be safe, have it be secure. Everything that you undertake will be blessed. So if you set your mind to inventing or crafting or artistry, you will be blessed in it. You will prosper. You'll be successful. You'll be able to do what you set your mind to doing. That is contrasted down below in the Curses for Disobedience where it's listed. Madness is listed. People groping around during the daytime as if it were night, as if they were blind. And what do we have in the New Testament as a corollary? In Romans, when Paul writes about God giving them over to a reprobate mind, which is to say a mind incapable of reason. That's a very scary kind of judgment, but it has an equal and opposite blessing for obedience, for faithfulness. The equal and opposite blessing is you will have a sound mind. Instead of being reprobate, incapable of reason, you'll be very reasonable. You will be very good at it. You'll be very logical and orderly and systematic and successful in your thinking. Instead of constantly losing your train of thought and asking, what was I just saying? What was I just doing? There's a blessing that comes with obedience and faithfulness that has to do with what you set your mind to doing and being able to do it. Verse 9, Yahweh will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and walk in his ways. If, right? If, this is a conditional statement. If all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Yahweh and they shall be afraid of you. And Yahweh will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land Yahweh swore to your fathers to give you. Now note here, there's a reputational aspect that is part of the blessing. You'll have a good reputation. In fact, all of the other countries, every last one of them is going to be intimidated by you because you are so prosperous, you are so successful. Whatever you set your mind to, you accomplish. You are so numerous. You are so wealthy. You are so prosperous. All of the other countries will be afraid of you. But it gets better from a foreign relations standpoint. Yahweh will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Now, that's an interesting thing to think about, especially with all of the business about debt ceilings being raised here in the U.S. How many foreign countries own debt, debt that the United States of America has incurred? And what will the result be? Post-World War II, if you know your history, America lent to many nations, particularly in Europe, so that those nations could rebuild after much bombing, much destruction of towns and cities and factories 
and infrastructure. America lent. We loaned money. And what we got in return was quite a lot of prosperity. We were already prosperous, but not like after World War II when we loaned to the countries of the world so that they could rebuild. Now, what is the condition? As we borrow, as we became addicted to our prosperity and we borrow to accelerate that bell curve, we find that we are beholden to those countries that hold our debt, even our adversaries. And yet, part of the blessing that God is giving and pronouncing on Israel is that they will loan money, but they will not borrow money. They will loan to other nations. They won't borrow from other nations, which is to say, God notices. That's a relevant, pertinent detail and condition to God, and it is closely related to obedience or disobedience. Righteousness or sin, it is closely related to whether a people is indebted to every other nation or loaning to other nations. And oh, by the way, too, for those who would say that lending at interest is ungodly, pay close attention. Don't read it too fast. Loaning at interest from one Israelite to another, God says to not to. But he does say you can loan to foreigners. That's all right. And so as a nation, as a country, Israel can loan to other countries. But then God does not bless them. (laughs) If it is such a blessing, God does not bless them with borrowing from other countries. Isn't that interesting? How much do we factor that into our thinking about economics? When the left wants to spend themselves into power or increase their power, maintain a hold on power, what do they do? They tax or they borrow. They tax the people heavily or else they fine people. They come up with new things to extract wealth from the economy if you don't do them or if you do them, new penalties, new incentives, but they borrow money. And that is not a blessed condition. Whatever they would rationalize, they're blind guides. Their economists are liars. They are false teachers after a fashion, economically. When they say that that's how prosperity happens, no, no, that's how poverty happens. That's how prosperity happens for the people that you're borrowing from, but that is not how to be prosperous yourself to be borrowing from your adversaries in particular, but even your allies. There's this interesting phrase that's thrown in. Yahweh will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. So you will be the head and not the tail. What is that? What does that mean? When I looked this up, on the literal word Bible app on my phone, head in the Hebrew is ros. It's a noun meaning head, top, summit, upper part, chief, total, sum, height, front, or beginning. Tail is zanab. It means tail or end or stump. Think here of perhaps two men walking. Who walks in front when they come to a narrow passage? That is probably the person with the most prestige, the most clout, the most authority, the most standing. Who's the tail? 
who takes up the rear, probably the person with the lowest status, the one who's the chief, the one who is the leader, leads, is out in front. This is part of the blessing for Israel, for obedience, if they will obey, if, and again, all of this is conditional. It is an if statement tied to behavior and attitude, not to be rude or disrespectful towards Dennis Prager, for whom I have a great deal of respect. But if he would say that he does not see so much interest in the heart and the internal world in the Old Testament, the laws of God are to do with behavior. I would say there are more to do with behavior than far too many cheap grace style American evangelicals give credit for, but it's not either or. It would be a logical fallacy for us to say that it's one or the other when it really is supposed to be both. If there is joyfulness in your faithfulness because you trust God, because you believe God, because you love God, then there will be behavior. That's the secret to understanding this. God's not looking just for outward conformity. In fact, he specifically says in many places he wants them to do this or that with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind to fully apply themselves internally as well. He wants their attitude to be correct, their intentions to be correct, their intention being love for him. But then we come to the curses, right? We come to the curses. And verses 1 through 14 in Deuteronomy 28 are all about the good things, right? The happy benefits, the upsides, the perks to being God's people, to obeying, to being faithful, to maintaining this covenant in an attitudinal way and in a behavioral way as a people and as persons, individual. But verses 15 through the end of the chapter, which has 68 verses, 15 through 68 have to do with the curses. And I want to spend just a little bit of time. I know many of you probably are tuning in because you want to hear the review of The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot, and I promise we will get to it, but you will understand the conservative mind from Burke to Elliot better for us having talked about this. Conservatives in particular get a reputation for only being against things. Supposedly conservatives are against innovation. They're against progress. They're against trying something new. They're against fresh ideas. But note here, even in what God tells his people, you get 14 verses about the blessings and you don't really have to sell it. I mean, there's enough there pretty quickly. You're like, man, that sounds really good. That sounds like a good deal. Where do we sign? But the curses, right? The curses from verses 15 through 68, that is 53 verses in comparison to 14. That is to say, Nearly 80% of this chapter, which is a long chapter, has to do with a very sober warning against disobedience, which is to say this doesn't work only in one direction. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, just like there are blessings for obedience, there are curses for disobedience. But 80% almost of the chapter deals with a deterrence a warning, a promise that in hindsight we know has been fulfilled. We can look back through the history of this people and see 
what happened in the biblical narrative and outside of the biblical narrative as they pursued other gods, as they ignored the commandments of Yahweh, their God. We don't have to speculate. We know that this was fulfilled and that God himself was the one to do it. That is profound for our theology. It has to be profound for our understanding of God. Speaking of Dennis Prager, by the way, I was watching a excellent back and forth discussion between Betsy DeVos, who formerly under the Trump administration was the Secretary of Education, interestingly enough. Fun fact, they didn't like her so much over there in the public school, federal level department that she was put over, in part because she doesn't believe that there should be a federal department of education. Go figure. She shows up. She's like, yep, I don't think you guys should be here. I don't think you should be doing this stuff you're doing. And they're like, yeah, we don't like you very much. This is kind of our job as we understand it. But then it's not just that they are a federal level department. It's, of course, also what they are doing, what they think they should do, what they think is in the best interest of the country, the people, the children in particular, who are supposed to be receiving a good education. And supposedly it's the job of the Department of Education, U.S. Department, federal level, cabinet level Department of Education to make sure that they get that good education. But Betsy DeVos sat down for a discussion with Dennis Prager here a few months ago, and the video was up on PragerU. It's worth a watch. But they're talking back and forth, and Dennis Prager says at a certain point, with regards to Randy Weingarten, the head of the nation's largest teachers union, the NEA, which has a long and sorted history, by the way, but that's a topic for another day. He says, this is going to jar some of my Christian audience. I know that Christians in America are really big on don't hate the sinner, hate the sin, but I don't know where that came from. There's no verse that says that. That's not in the Bible. In fact, there are many times in the Bible where God hates people. He doesn't just hate the sin. He also hates the sinner at a certain point. Now, if you commit some small sin, so to speak, comparatively, and yes, there are smaller sins and greater sins, that's also biblical. But if you commit a small sin, does God hate you? No. Have you violated his holy standard? Yes. Does something need to be done about that? Yes. But at a certain point, God hates the sinner because this is all they think about, all they try to do all the time. This is who they are. It's not just what they have done once or twice that they have sinned. It's that they are set on sinning. That's all they think to do. That's all they want to do. That's all they aspire to all the time is to sin. They plot and they scheme how to sin better in the future. And they sin all the time in particular ways, perhaps. And they make that their life choice, their lifestyle, their identity. But he said flat out, I hate Randy Weingarten. The damage that she does and has done to American children and the American people as head of the NEA, I hate her. And he said this, and I thought, man, that is, that's strong stuff. He's not wrong about God hating sinners. At various points, we see that throughout the biblical text. Not just that 
a certain behavior is an abomination to him, but those who do such things are an abomination to him. We see that several times. So we know that God hates people sometimes for who they've chosen to be, what they have chosen to center their life on. You don't want to be in that spot where God hates you. But then, interesting, this people, his people, he warns them in the strongest possible terms, unmistakable terms, verses 15 through 68, 79.412% of this chapter. He warns them, if you are faithless, if you disobey, if you forget me as your God, if you go after other gods, if you pursue evil instead of the good, you will get the evil. Verse 63, As Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, which is to say, blessing your economy, blessing your families with lots of children. As Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And that's important, right? That's important for our theology to be sound, that this says what it says, and it means what it says. That's a very different image of God than what has been portrayed to us in far too much sermonizing, literature, Bible studies, devotionals, children's material. In particular, VeggieTales comes to mind. I harp on VeggieTales. I do because there's this soft, weak, dare I say it, even potentially effeminate (laughs) portrayal of the biblical text and by extension, God himself, which has done tremendous harm to our sobriety, to our fear of the Lord. How do you get a fear of God when it's all talking vegetables and bloodless, sanitized because we think we know better? 79% of this chapter is about how God is going to delight in bringing ruin and destruction Not just ruin on their economy, ruin on their cities. Yes, those things, for sure. But ruin on them personally, individually, them as a people in the macro. Destruction, not just destruction for their effects, not just destruction for their material goods, not just destruction for their reputation, not just destruction for their ability to field an army on the battle field, destruction of them as people. He will take delight in that if they are disobedient. That's a sobering, sobering thought. That should be sobering to me. That should be sobering to you. That should be sobering to us. Let's talk about the conservative mind from Burke to Eliot, though. Let's talk about this book, that I just finished reading yesterday on the recommendation of my friends, Joseph Crampton and Bobby McPherson, my associates with the Reformed Conservative and Ingladia Veritas, The Sort of Truth. Here's what goodreads.com has to say in their summary for the conservative mind. A quote first up from William F. Buckley Jr., It is inconceivable even to imagine, let alone hope for, a dominant conservative movement in America without Kirk's labor, end quote. William F. Buckley Jr., very influential thinker on conservatism in the U.S., 
founded the National Review. You may have heard of it. Reading on, Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind is one of the greatest contributions to 20th century American conservatism, brilliant in every respect, from its conception to its choice of significant figures representing the history of intellectual conservatism. The Conservative Mind launched the modern American conservative movement when it was first published in 1953 and has become an enduring classic of political thought. The seventh revised edition features the complete text and an introduction by publisher Henry Regency, a must-read. Doug Wilson is the only person that I follow who has this one shelved as read. His review of it is very succinct, very to the point. He gives it four stars. I gave it five. He gave it four stars back in 2009. And all he said was, excellent. I give it five stars. If the measure of a good book is how many more authors and works you want to read next because of their being referenced and discussed because they're introduced and placed in a meaningful context. Kirk's conservative mind here is a truly great book. That's my view. That is my view. A little bit about Russell Kirk, if you didn't know. Also from Goodreads. For more than 40 years, Russell Kirk was in the thick of the intellectual controversies of his time. He is the author of some 32 books, hundreds of periodical essays, and many short stories. Both Time and Newsweek have described him as one of America's leading thinkers, and the New York Times acknowledged the scale of his influence when, in 1998, it wrote that Kirk's 1953 book, The Conservative Mind, quote, gave American conservatives an identity and a genealogy and catalyzed the post-war movement, end quote. Dr. Kirk wrote and spoke on modern culture, political thought and practice, educational theory, literary criticism, ethical questions, and social themes. He addressed audiences on hundreds of American campuses and appeared often on television and radio. He edited the educational quarterly journal, The University Bookman, and was founder and first editor of The Quarterly Modern Age. He contributed articles to numerous serious periodicals on either side of the Atlantic. For a quarter of a century, he wrote a page on education for National Review and for 13 years published through the LA Times Syndicate, a nationally syndicated newspaper column. Over the years, he contributed to more than 100 serious periodicals in the United States, Britain, Canada, Australia, Austria, Germany, Italy, Spain, Bulgaria, and Poland. Among them, Sewani Review, Yale Review, Fortune, Humanitas, The Contemporary Review, The Journal of the History of Ideas, World Review, Crisis, History Today, Policy Review, Commonweal, Kenyan Review, The Review of Politics, and The World and I. He is the only American to hold the highest arts degree earned of the senior Scottish University Doctor of Letters of St. Andrews. He received his bachelor's degree from Michigan State University and his master's degree from Duke University. He received honorary doctorates from 12 American universities and colleges. He was a Guggenheim Fellow, a senior fellow of the American Council of Learned Societies, a constitutional fellow of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and a Fulbright lecturer in Scotland. The Christopher Award was conferred upon him for his book, Elliot and His Age, and he received the Anne Radcliffe Award of the Count Dracula Society for his Gothic fiction, The Third World Trail A-Winding. In 1984, he received the Weaver Award of the Ingersoll Prize for his scholarly writing. For several years, he was a distinguished scholar of the Heritage Foundation. In 1989, President Reagan conferred on him the Presidential Citizens Medal. In 1991, he was awarded the Salvatore Prize for historical writing. More than a million copies of Kirk's books 
have been sold and several have been translated in German, Italian, Spanish, Dutch, Korean, and other languages. His second book, The Conservative Mind, so this was his second book, The Conservative Mind, 1953, is one of the most widely reviewed and discussed studies of political ideas in this century and has gone through seven editions. 17 of his books are in print at present, and he has written prefaces to many other books, contributed essays to them, or edited them. Dr. Kirk debated with such well-known speakers as Norman Thomas, Frank Mankiewicz, Kerry McWilliams, John Roche, Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., Michael Harrington, Max Lerner, Michael Novak, Sidney Lenz, William Kunstler, Hubert Humphrey, F.A. Hayek, Carl Hess, Clifford Case, Ayn Rand, Eugene McCarthy, Leonard Weinglass, Louis Lemax, Harold Taylor, Clark Kerr, Saul Alinsky. That would be a fun one to listen to, by the way. Stoughton Lind, Malcolm X, Dick Gregory, and Tom Hyden. Several of his public lectures have been broadcast nationally on C-SPAN among Kirk's literary and scholarly friends were T.S. Eliot, Roy Campbell, Wyndham Lewis, Donald Davidson, George Scott McCreef, Richard Weaver, Max Picard, Ray Bradbury, Bernard Iddings Bell, Paul Roche, James McCauley, Thomas Howard, Wilhelm Rupk, Robert Spite. So, the guy knew things, right? He, he was a smart guy. He was a smart guy who wrote important things. This book, The Conservative Mind, I give five stars to. I read this and I can attest to this giving a genealogy to modern conservatives. Like in Genesis, when you read about so-and-so begetting, so-and-so begetting, so-and-so begetting, so-and-so, as I've said with regards to Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, which gives us something of a genealogy of ideas on the progressive side, how we got to now with all of this thinking about transgenderism and homosexuality, philosophically, what's going on in our culture, that these are ideas that come from somewhere and they've been built on previous ideas from previous thinkers. Well, so also in a more positive sense, if you want to know where you come from, if you are a conservative, if you want to be more intentional and really build out your conservative philosophy, your thinking, you want it to be intentional and deliberate and careful and successful, I would commend the conservative mind to you. Now let's start from the top. And let me tell you, I'm not going to be able to do this book justice. You should read it. But from Burke to Eliot, that's the subtitle. Eliot was a friend of Russell Kirk's, but Edmund Burke is the guy to start with. Edmund Burke, when you're thinking about the conservative mind, what we call conservative political philosophy, but it's not just political philosophy. It's also a general schema for thinking about the world and life and history and society and the family and God. But then where does it come from? What makes up the philosophy of Edmund Burke? If you wanted to know that one, you could read Russell Kirk's excellent biography of Edmund Burke, which I have a review for as well. If you want to go searching for it, check it out. You could read also Reflections on the Revolution in France, which is most excellent. Very robust. Edmund Burke also knew things. <laughs> he was a smart guy. He wrote very carefully, very intentionally, very systematically, very robustly about why the French Revolution was a bad idea. 
and why you didn't want that bad idea spreading like a contagious disease, an infectious disease of the mind, of the thinking. You didn't want that French revolutionary thinking spreading to especially Britain, but really anywhere. And yet what happened, right? What happened is exactly that, like a pandemic, like a plague of thinking, wasting people and nations in its path. The ideas of the French Revolution did spread throughout Europe and even to Russia and you could say to China and here to the US. The ideas of the French Revolution spread. But if you want to understand why that's unfortunate and perhaps what we should do about it, how we could counter more robustly, more comprehensively, you might read Reflections on the Revolution in France. If you wanted a more pleasant, more genteel, less stressful introduction to Burke, you could read his treatise on the nature of the beautiful and the sublime, his work on aesthetics, his philosophical treatise, philosophical inquiry into the nature of beauty. But if you read Russell Kirk, The Conservative Mind from Burke to Eliot, you have something of an idea of what context to put those works into. Because Burke had an influence on others, rightly so. He had an influence on others who were statesmen, who were philosophers, who were academics, who were artists and poets as well, who were novelists. Burke had an influence and passed the baton, so to speak, by his writings, by his example. And then others picked it up. They picked up that baton and they carried it forward and they built on in a very conservative way. They built on the ideas of Burke. And if you can appreciate that not all conservatives have the exact same reasons or the same application of conservative principles, there is a common denominator, nevertheless. And this common denominator, as Russell Kirk sums it up at various points, this common denominator is that we have an inheritance. We have together as a people, all of us, an inheritance because there were previous generations who built up what we call civilization. They built up our family. They built up our community. They built up our country. They built up our civilization. And insofar as what they built up yields benefits, if we want to preserve those benefits and if we want to honor the memory and the contributions of those who went before, or if we want to take as a cautionary tale what they did that was not so good that we would not want to do again, if we would, we must look to preserve and conserve what is good in what was handed down to us. And if we would conserve what good there was that was passed down to us instead of just burning it all down, shaking the etch-a-sketch, starting all over again, every generation like Thomas Paine would have us, relentlessly pursuing the state of nature as Rousseau would have us, if we would conserve, well, then we study. We study and we think and we reason. But what's curious too is there's a strain of theism generally, but Christianity in particular that runs throughout the conservative mind from Burke to Eliot. Burke certainly featured it, but others after him as well. 
And this strain of theism being particular to Christianity really emphasizes the fear of God. What's one of the presuppositional differences between conservatives and progressives, so-called, or liberals, so-called, in our day? What is one of the distinctives that we recognize and we maybe are afraid to admit it or talk about it or point it out? What is one of the distinctives? The fear of God. Some people pretend to have it, or we're not so sure that they're genuine, or we're very cynical. And so even if they were genuine, maybe we would write it off because we refuse to admit that these things could go together and be successful. And so therefore they won't. But if we were honest, and if we would look back through the centuries, what we would understand is this has been a theme of conservative thinking for hundreds of years, all the way back to Burke, certainly. And it didn't start with Burke either. He was a conservative because he was looking back to previous generations as well and saying, let's conserve the fear of the Lord and let's conserve the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord and let's conserve the accumulated benefits of generations having honored their fathers and their mothers and let's extend that principle of honoring your father and your mother to include our intellectual ancestors, our philosophical ancestors, our cultural ancestors, our civilizational ancestors. There's this idea of the democracy of the dead, so to speak. Don't take that too literally. But there's this idea that there's a benefit to reading the works of those who've gone before. And you might say that can go too far, and I would agree with you. If we start to idolize those who have passed away, we should be careful to not. (laughs) If we start to, we should not do that. We should just stop it. But then isn't that an interesting thing too? There's a humility. There's a fear of the Lord that is particular to the conservative mind. And there's a humility that is particular to the conservative mind. And these two things go hand in hand. There's a humility to someone of a particular generation saying, there's a lot here. I need to consult my elders. I need to consult those who came before me. I need to go back and read what they wrote. Their last will and testament, so to speak, if they've passed on, this was what they hoped would survive them and be passed down to future generations. There's a humility that's inherent to that, which very neatly proceeds from, emanates from a fear of the Lord. Because that humility It has to have an effect on how we relate to God. And oh, by the way, another hallmark of conservatives for centuries, from Burke to Eliot and on to the present, another hallmark is we insist and maintain and believe and talk like and think like and act like or aspire to, at least, there is such a thing as objective truth. There's objective truth, and if you would know the truth, You would be free, and who the sun sets free is free indeed. If you would know the truth, the truth would set you free. But the truth is objective, not subjective. I got into a back and forth with someone, some stranger on the internet the other day, after commenting on a video that I watched, an interesting documentary about some of the shenanigans that happened, Operation Northwoods, for instance, during 
John F. Kennedy's presidency. Certain plans that were proposed by military leadership, top brass in the government, to carry out false flag attacks in the U.S. to build a consensus that we should go to war against Cuba and depose Fidel Castro. JFK said, absolutely not. We are not doing that. But the documentary was very interesting, and it left this impression, this insinuation, that you can't trust the United States now, and it's never been the case that you could trust the United States because the government lies to its people and may even actively harm them, may even murder them, just to build up a case and a consensus if the murders can be blamed on people that are government or intelligence agencies or military leadership want to go to war against. And so therefore, because this is the thing, maybe you shouldn't trust what you believe about Fidel Castro and the communists in Cuba. Maybe they didn't need to be removed at all. Because there were bad men doing bad things in the U.S. government, therefore, Fidel Castro, I guess, had clean hands, was not a bad guy. Again, with the either or, it's not either or. Both of these things can be true at the same time, which is what I commented. I said two things could be true at the same time. One, that there were bad men in the U.S. government who wanted to do bad things to get the result that they wanted. They were very utilitarian in their thinking about these things, which, by the way, is not a conservative mindset. Conservatives consistently have been opposed to utilitarians because the utilitarian says, I'm going to seize the opportunity, whatever it is at the present, and whether that would shame my ancestors, my forebearers, be damned. Whether that's objectively good and true, I don't care about that. But I commented, I said, two things can be true at the same time. One, that there are bad people in the U.S. government who have lied and they've done bad things. They've wanted to do bad things. Sometimes they've been stopped from doing bad things to accomplish their own goals, their own initiatives. And also that Castro was a bad man who should have been removed. Yeah, they might have been right, those military leaders and those bureaucrats. They might have been right that Castro needed to be removed. That was not the way to remove him. And if they had been conservatives, they would have understood that. They would have known that. But of course, they weren't. And that gets very confusing for the leftists. (laughs) Or if it's not confusing, they misrepresent it because they want you to throw out the whole of American tradition and start over. They want you to do the Thomas Paine thing. Shake the Etch-a-Sketch. Start fresh. Each generation has the right to revolution. Someone commented in reply, taking exception to my claim that Castro had been a bad man. He said, no, he wasn't a bad man. I said, oh, really? Interesting. Okay. How do you know? Did he reward those who did what was good and punish those who do what is evil, those who did what was evil? Yes, he did. And you should ask the Cuban people. The Cuban people supported him. I said, oh, interesting. So that's how it works. If the Cuban people supported him, that's how we know he was a good guy. Interesting. I don't think I don't, I don't think that's relevant, actually. If the American people were against him, that didn't prove that he was a bad guy. If the Cuban people were for him, that didn't prove that he was a good guy. He was either good or bad objectively based on a fixed standard of what is good and evil. And of course, the other person I was engaging with fell very quickly silent because 
He didn't have anything for that. That's not how he sees good and evil. Good and evil are useful terms to get what you want. They're not fixed definitions. They're not fixed categories. But to the conservative, they are. Even if our appreciation of them, our understanding of them in individual situations is not always a static thing. In fact, that's always in need of attention, intentionality, work, effort, study, deliberation, meditation, application, reassessment. But coming back to the conservative mind from Burke to Elliot, here's what Audible has to say. I listened to it, by the way, on Audible. The publisher's summary. First published in 1953, this magnificent work will be remembered in ages to come as one of our century's most important legacies, written during a time when liberalism was heralded as the only political and intellectual tradition in America. There is no doubt that this book is largely responsible for the rise of conservatism as a viable and credible creed. Kirk defines the conservative mind by examining such brilliant men as Edmund Burke, James Fenimore Cooper, Alexis de Tocqueville, John Quincy Adams, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Benjamin Disraeli, Cardinal Newman, George Santayana, and finally T.S. Eliot. Vigorously written, the book represents conservatism as an ideology born of sound intellectual traditions. Copyright 1986, Russell Kirk, published 1989, Blackstone Audio Incorporated. Copyright 1986, that's the year I was born. Fun fact. I've read some of these men, and I've studied others of these men. George Santayana is a familiar name, this whole idea, variously stated that the lesson we learn from history is that we don't learn the lessons of history. Those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Something like that, something along those lines. That's a Santayana idea. Nathaniel Hawthorne, if you've been listening for a while, I did an episode talking through The Great Champion, this excellent short story. We have several works by Nathaniel Hawthorne. In fact, Nathaniel Hawthorne works make up one of the pillars of our children's education. So it's fun to realize and appreciate that he is considered a conservative thinker who carried these ideas forward in his works. John Quincy Adams. I've actually met a direct descendant of John Quincy Adams. It's been years ago at this point, but up near the Canada border, right on the Canada border, he lives in North Dakota. I hope he still lives. He was a pleasant older gentleman. Very interesting to talk with. We had hours of conversation, actually, only the once. But John Quincy Adams and John Adams, his father before him, were the equivalent. John Adams Sr. in particular was the equivalent of Edmund Burke here in the U.S., here in the colonies before this was its own distinct country. It's important for us to know that they are conservatives when we come across their legacy, when we come across their works. It's also important to note their limitations. John Quincy Adams, for instance, for example, John Adams, for example, rather fussy. And maybe that's part of why conservatives have the reputation that we do in the U.S. And I do consider myself a conservative. By the way, there are a lot of labels that I hold back from, and I can say I embrace that, and I appreciate that, and I affirm that, and I respect this other thing, and I'll borrow there, and I'll tack this on to my own thinking here. Thanks for that. No, I don't have to accept the whole package deal. Conservative is what I will embrace. I do embrace the term conservative. 
I am a conservative. And I think that's no small part of why I have an affinity for John Adams. I like John Adams. I appreciate his thinking. I wouldn't agree with John Adams on plenty of things. For instance, a lot of his theology was universalist. I don't agree with that. But I think based on my having had extended conversation with one of his descendants, I think that I could have an excellent discussion with John Adams if I were to hop in a time machine and go back a few hundred years. I think we could have a meaningful conversation that would be beneficial. It's good to know that the Adamses were conservatives. They were a major conservative influence in the United States at the founding. Alexis de Tocqueville, very conservative in his thinking. His commentary, his note-taking, his book, Democracy in America in particular, after traveling through the U.S. in 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville's capturing of important descriptions and analysis of how it was going. How, how was it going? How were they doing over there across the oceans in America as a Frenchman, as an outside observer? Very conservative, very conservative and very useful, very helpful for people who want to conserve what is good. We want to think on what is good. We want to say what is true. We want to have America be a beautiful place, a beautiful country. It's very helpful for us to understand the context of Alexis de Tocqueville in the genealogy of conservative thought. And Russell Kirk gives us that. James Fenimore Cooper, for that matter. I never would have thought, but it fits. It makes sense. James Fenimore Cooper, author of The Last of the Mohicans, for instance, for example. Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of The Scarlet Letter, for instance. It's important for us to know that there are conservative ideas, there's conservative philosophy being transmitted in those novels, in those stories. It's important for us to know that if we would read them well, if we would read them at all, that would be a conservative endeavor to say it matters, right? It matters where we come from. It matters what the history of this country is. It matters that it's told accurately. And that does not mean, despite what the radical leftists will insist and chant and scream, screeching into the sky on their knees when they don't get their way. To tell our history well and truly does not mean you say everything was hunky-dory, everything everybody did and said was right up until the present. So we should just go back in time and just do everything that they used to do. Because you know what? Going into Deuteronomy 27 and 28 with that mindset we would be shocked to find 79% is cursings for disobedience. A warning that if you do not keep the faith, if you do not obey joyfully with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, if you don't love the Lord your God, trust him, obey him, serve him only, these bad things will happen to you. That's half the point of reading history. But if you have liars, if you have dishonest people, which you'll also find in history, by the way, that's one of the reasons to read history is you learn better how to spot liars in the present. But if somebody lies about history, say for instance, the way Howard Zinn lies through his teeth about history and presents a false and deceitful and manipulative view of our inheritance as Americans, if somebody lies about history, 
The conservative wants to fight them. And ought to. Because they're thieves. The thief comes to steal and destroy. Those who would lie about what has been passed down to us are thieves. They're slanderers, too. I mean, just think for a moment about the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before Yahweh God. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Remember. 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 Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet, even. Don't just not steal. (laughs) Also, don't covet, because covetousness very quickly evolves into, gives birth to these other sins, stealing, lying, committing murder, committing adultery. When you covet what your neighbor has, very quickly you find yourself bearing false witness against him to try and take what rightfully belongs to him. Think about all of those 10 and tell me, one, that those are not conservative commandments, to conserve what is good. But two, tell me that the best pursuit of progress can be found by neglecting them. It's not possible for there to be progress if you don't conserve what you have. I mean, imagine for a moment, I handed you a pail and I said, please go and fill this with water and bring it back. But there was no bottom. There was no bottom to the pail and the sides were all rusted out and the handle was broken. What would you say to me? If that were my pail, you would say, you've got to be joking. You expect me to bring you water in this? I'm going to bring you drops of water, whatever residue remains on the bucket, on the pail. By the time I get back to you from having tried to fill it, I can't fill this. A conservative is the person who says, I'm going to have a bucket that does not have holes in the sides, but does have an intact bottom to it. And the handle is not broken. A conservative is one who has a bucket that they inherited from their father before them. They even learned to appreciate that you would have such a thing as a bucket from their father before them. Who inherited the bucket or the idea of this bucket or the priority of the bucket from his father and his father before him and so on and so forth. A conservative is someone who when they have a bucket, if they have need for more buckets, they get more buckets. They make them or they buy them. And when they have buckets, what do they do? They keep those buckets in a good condition, in a good state. They store them properly in a place where they won't be destroyed and they won't rust or they won't rot or they won't be smashed. A conservative is one who, when he has buckets, does not suffer fools gladly who would damage those buckets, who would destroy those buckets, who would lie and say, Oh, because you have buckets, I have no bucket. I'm going to take your bucket or I'm going to destroy your bucket so that we all have the same number of buckets. That's all that matters. The conservative will say, get your own damn bucket or ask nicely. Ask nicely and I will be happy to loan you my bucket, but please take care of it. Bring it back. But the conservative is always at odds with the liberal. And why is that? Not because the conservative is opposed to liberty, but because the conservative sees the liberal as destroying the foundation on which true freedom 
is made possible and can be sustained. We see this right now, today, that those who claim they are for liberty are the most constrictive of anyone who does not tolerate everything they say to tolerate. And ironically, the other side of the coin is, and what makes this so unstable, the more you say, I'm going to not tolerate anybody who does not tolerate, the sooner you are right back where you started, but now you don't have a bucket because you destroyed everything. You destroyed everything so you could make it fresh, make it new, but you also destroyed the basis for having freedom, having rights and responsibilities in the first place, but then also having the means to maintain your rights, having the means to fulfill your responsibilities. What we have in the conservative mind by Russell Kirk, from Burke to Elliot and on to the present, and I will carry this torch forward, God willing. What we have is something like when the volunteer fire department in a town is scooping up water out of the local stream or the pond or the well, because not just one person's house is on fire, but you have an arsonist running around town trying to set the whole town on fire, burn it all down and put them in charge of the reconstruction effort. The conservative tradition, as told by Russell Kirk here, is of one man passing the bucket full of water to the next man who passes it to the next man. That's a better analogy, actually, than the passing of batons. It's the passing of the bucket of water, the pail of water, from one man to the next to the next. And each one who takes hold of that bucket wants to preserve the bucket as well as the water because you can't preserve the water and get it from point A to point B where the fire is at unless you preserve the bucket. And you know what? Traditions have a limited utility. If there's no water in the bucket, then what? When, what are you going to do once you get to the fire? Once you pass it off to the next person who's trying to put out the blaze, who's trying to stop the arsonist. I suppose you could hit the arsonist with the empty bucket that doesn't hold water anymore. You could do that. And maybe that's where we're at. <laughs> we have broken buckets with holes and rust and handles that are not stable that don't hold water in too many cases because we haven't conserved even the bucket of what it means to be a conservative. The conservative mind from Burke to Elliott is essentially conservatism squared because it's the conserving of conservatism, ladies and gentlemen. And without these kinds of works, these kinds of authors, these kinds of thinkers passing it on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, we lose everything. We lose it all. And you can say, well, Garrett, I think you may be conflating things, right? Conservatism is not Christianity. There are plenty of conservatives who are not Christians. And there are plenty of Christians who would never call themselves conservatives. And so what do you do about that? And I say, you know what? If we were more intentional, if we were more careful, I think we would recognize that the best Christians are conservatives. The best conservatives are Christians. And I can defend that point. To deal with the exceptions only is to destroy the ability to make rules, which is to say, you're with the arsonist. He's recruited you or he's won you over by his arguments. More of us should think about the many biblical passages that show an attention to the economic interest and how the economic interest is conditional on 
faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in the relationship of parents to children and children to parents, the relationship of members of a community to one another, neighbors to one another, the elders of the city or the town to the common people who come to them asking for good justice, judgment without partiality. We see again and again this idea of passing it down. Pass it on. Fathers in particular. And yes, that is to say also a survey of conservatism is remarkably patriarchal. And why is that? Because the father is supposed to be the one who gives these things to his sons and his sons have to both be able to put out fires and fight the arsonist if it comes to that. If the arsonist is attacking them because, hey, we're at cross purposes here after all, or if you can't put out the fires fast enough because more and more and more blazes are being set, you're going to have to stop the setting of new fires around town before you can get to putting out the fires. That is a first and foremost male-suited endeavor. That is a male initiative. That is the domain of husbands and fathers in particular. A quick word too, if I may, because this pertains. I say fathers and husbands in particular because this book is called The Conservative Mind. It's not called The Conservative Intellectual. As Kirk points out, Historically, intellectual has not been a term of endearment. For someone to be an intellectual was to say that they were pretentious. Sophists, for instance, loved to quibble about words and yet were charged in scripture. We are warned with the utmost sobriety to not quarrel about words because it only ruins the hearers. It does no good. It only ruins the hearers. And yet... To cultivate the mind is distinct from being an intellectual or quarreling about words. And more of us need to know that too. <laughs> to cultivate the life of the mind is not the domain of the experts. That is not the domain of the intellectuals. That is not the domain of the academics. No, no. We all have a mind and each of us individually are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and yes, with all our mind. When this book was titled The Conservative Mind, that was not accidental. And you might look at it and you might think, boy, howdy, this list of names. It seems like this is only for the politician types. This is only for those who want to run for office. This is only for the academics. This is only for the professors. This is only for the philosophy nerds. This is only for the really bookish people. You know what? If you want to conserve what has been built up and passed down to you, you should all be reading books. That as few people as do read books, and so many of them trashy books, maybe they read one or two books a year, but they're trashy books because they don't have a frame of reference on what a good book actually is. And they don't have a goal that is subordinated to loving God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, loving their neighbor as themselves, because they don't have that as their focusing goal, they could take it or leave it. What's the point, right? I read for my pleasure. Ah, for your pleasure. Yes, yes, indeed. Indeed, there we have it. How about reading for God's pleasure? And some will say, well, you know, 
the only book I really need to read for God's pleasure is the Bible or whatever the hip trendy current faddish Christian literature is. Or if I'm old school, I'll read the Puritans. But then even that's good, right? That's good because it gives you a perspective as long as you can hold back from putting those men on a pedestal that's not appropriate, as long as you can hold back from idolizing them, that's good. That's a place to start. And actually the Puritans were very well read themselves. They were very well read. If you read the Puritans, you will by osmosis after a fashion become more acquainted with a broader range of ideas and concepts and thinkers and works. And oh, by the way, many of those are not expressly Christian, but they are being taken captive. Every thought that they had, that they relayed, that is in circulation, the Puritans endeavor to take captive. And whether they're always successful, that's a secondary question. And the answer is no, they're not always successful, but that they wanted to, that they tried, that that was the aspirational model is exemplary. And we need to follow that example. And if we would follow that example, if we would take note of it, that too, friends, is a conservative value. And it's at direct odds with a liberal mindset, which would say those Puritans had no fun. There's something in the liberal, the leftist, the adherent of French revolutionary principles that sees the Puritans as a kind of arch nemesis. Because why? Because they too aspired to take every thought captive. And of course, there's some fuzziness because some of the Puritans were also willing to burn things down. But if you would read them, you might learn to not make the same mistakes that they did. And if you would read them, you might find that where they figured some exemplary things out, where they learned some good lessons and they passed those down, now you also are carrying that bucket to these various fires that are being set around town. In so doing, you can give not just conservatism a good name, but you can also give Christianity a good name. How will history remember us? That's another point you can't miss when you read history. You start thinking about your great-great-great-grandfather and whether he passed down to you a lot of obstacles to overcome or he passed down to you a legacy to live up to. You start thinking about that. And then next thing you know, you're wondering, I wonder what... I will pass down to my great-great-great-grandson. Will I pass down to him an obstacle to overcome in my example or a legacy to live up to? Will he look back fondly and think, wow, thank you? Will it be easy for him to honor my memory or will it be hard? We should be thinking along those lines. Russell Kirk would help us to know how to and why to and what the implications are. So in closing, let me just say, again, this was a great read. It was a great read. Excellent indeed. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. Speaking of conservatism, I need to conserve what time I have left before we go to church. I'm going to take my wife and my kids to church. I'm on security detail this morning. Plus, I have an announcement to make regarding the Welfare of the City Project, our first Ecclesia Forum, August 13th in the evening of August 13th at Summit View Community Church. If you're in the area, 
feel free to stop on by, hang out. We're going to be talking about education. I'm giving the keynote address on education. You won't want to miss it. But again, as I said, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. <laughs>